Hey everybody, it's Peter, and before this week's co-op cast starts, I just wanted to apologize for the audio quality on my end. There's a lot of buzzing in the background, so hopefully everything will be back to normal. There doesn't seem to be any buzzing today, so please bear with this episode, and we should be back to normal next time I record. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to Co-op Cast, a podcast about cooperative board games, with your hosts, Peter Grusis and Michael Kelly. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Mike is in the house. And welcome to episode six of Co-op Cast. That was a terrible greeting. I apologize, everyone. Uh, yes, that was pretty terrible. And in uh, this episode, we will be discussing... The Dresden Files cooperative card game. You don't see many games that have game mechanisms in their title. Oh, like cooperative? It's a card game. It's a cooperative game. Yeah, I mean, and also it's not like they need to distinguish themselves from all the competitive Dresden Files games that have been released. Yeah, so it, it was an odd choice, but a good game nonetheless. Well, I'm calling it now my number one con, the name. Nice. That's not true. <laughs> So, Dresden Files, you're going to go a little bit into the universe, but I think this universe is pretty cool, so we want to spend a little bit of time going through the background and history of the Dresden Files. So why don't you take us away, Mike? All right, so this is based on the uh, book series by Jim Butcher. Uh, Peter, you've read all the way up to the most recent one, right? Yes. Yeah, and I've read uh, the entire series two or three times through. I'm a big fan. So the basic idea, without giving away any major plot points, is that uh, the books follow Harry Dresden, who is a uh, detective in the modern day in Chicago, but he's also a wizard, so he's solving mysteries and saving people in a very film noir kind of detective genre stereotype, but at the same time he's uh, casting spells and the people he's fighting against are vampires and werewolves instead of regular thugs, although some of them show up too. So it's a it's a great book series. It really evolves. I mean, I think he's on book 16 is coming out uh, this year and next year. So yeah, it's, it's definitely been going on for a while. And one of my favorite parts of the series you just mentioned is the supernatural creatures he's fighting against. I love the mishmash of these universes. You don't see often wizards against vampires and werewolves and fairies and everything in this one universe. So I think that really does set it apart and make it a great setting for a board game. Yeah, and everything isn't just like kind of standard horror tropes. Like, for example, the vampires, there's three different types. One of them is kind of like Twilight vampires Another one is more like typical Bram Stoker vampire. So yeah, it's it's definitely a pretty unique theme, even though a lot of the stuff that's going on in it is certainly pulled from other source material. Yeah, so let me get into the basic mechanics of the game. So uh, you're all working together to try to defeat a book. Basically, each uh, book in the series, or at least most of them, have a deck you can play against. You can play the first book in the book series, the second book. And the books have uh, 12 cards that are always the same 12 cards, but they're shuffled and dealt randomly in two rows on the board. The rows basically define the range to the cards. So like the card right at the front of either row is very easy to influence, whereas the cards all the way at the back are usually impossible to do anything to. And the basic idea is uh, there's four types of cards. Enemies you have to fight, investigations you have to solve, obstacles that mess with you, and advantages that can give you bonuses. 
The obstacles and advantages kind of give extra things, but the main thing is you have to beat enough enemies and solve enough mysteries and investigations so that the number of investigations you solved is greater than the number of enemies that are left. So yeah, so it's, it's a little weird to explain, but it works out pretty simply. So if there's one enemy left on the board and we've solved two investigations, we win because we have more investigations solved than the number of enemies left. So the actual gameplay, though, um, each player draws a hand. They have uh, 10 cards for the character they're playing as. And based on player count, you'll draw a certain number of cards, which basically ensures that the game lasts the same amount of time, no matter how many players are in the game. Yeah, so in a higher player count game, each player is going to get less actions. And in a lower player count game, each player is going to get more actions. But overall, it's going to be about the same number of total actions in the game. So you draw these cards from the 10 cards. Additionally, each character has a unique talent and stunt, two cards that are unique to them that lets them do special things. On your turn, you just go around the uh, board and um, you can either spend fate. So you have this little uh, shared pool of fate and fate goes from the available fate to the spent fate back and forth as you do actions. You can spend fate to play a card. It's uh, four types of player cards. They match the four cards, enemies, investigations, obstacles, and advantages. And uh, you'll either get closer to defeating the enemy or take care of the obstacle or gain the advantage. If you don't want to play a card or you don't have enough fate to play a card, you can discard a card. And the cost of that card is how much fate you get back. So you have kind of this give and take of fate points where you play cards and spend fate and then discard cards to get fate back. But to make the discarding a little bit more interesting than just discarding something, you get to use your character's talent, which will sometimes uh, hurt enemies for a small amount or do investigations or other things like that. Um, your third option, once per game and only once per game, you can use your character's stunt, which is usually a very, very powerful ability that you want to you know, leverage at the right time and use in just the right way. And then finally, the fourth action, which you'll almost never do, is to pass. The only clock on the game is the number of cards you have in your hand and the fate points you have in the pool. So there's no like enemy turn where you have to draw a card for the enemies. You just lay them out and they just sit there messing with you until you take care of them or not. But uh, when you don't have any cards left and you run out of fate in your pool or are close to running out, you go to the showdown, which basically gives you a randomized chance to finish off some of the enemies and investigations you might not have quite finished. All the randomization is handled by the uh, fate dice. If you haven't heard of Fate Dice, uh, Evil Hat made this game. They also make the Fate RPG. These are basically six-sided dice with uh, two sides that are pluses, two sides that are blank, two sides that are minuses. So you roll Fate Dice and uh, modify a base value by plus or minus. So that's uh, basically it. You make it to the showdown. Sometimes you can win before the showdown, but it's pretty rare. And uh, if you can, again, get more investigations than there are enemies left, then you win the game. Yeah, it's funny. We've gone through, and it was very hard. I actually tried to do the explanation of the game beforehand. And for such a simple game, there does seem to be a lot of explanation. But once you get into it, it really actually plays out very simply. Well, yeah, and a lot of stuff we just talked about, you don't even need to say to somebody at the beginning. If you just tell them how to play a card, and how to discard a card, and how fate points work, it's really simple. The majority of the cards just have numbers on them. Only a few in each player's deck have like specific text. And the earlier books that you play against have fewer special powers as well, so it's really not that complicated. Yeah, I think it's one of those games that you can bring to the table with players that say, I don't want to learn the rules, just let's start playing. I think it's it's good for those. 
So let's go into the pros and cons. So for those of you who haven't joined us before, the way we do pros and cons is we always start with our least offensive con and our least advantageous pro. <laughs> is that the way to phrase it? Yeah, that, I think I think those are beautiful vocab words. Nice job, Peter. So my number three pro is the length of the game. At 30 minutes, and I do think this game will play with 30 minutes, almost even your first time, like I said, you almost get this game right to the table and just start playing. There are very few rules you have to explain ahead of time. You can even play open-handed your first time just until players get used to playing a couple rounds and then you can close your hands up. But I think the length is perfect. And I think if it was any longer, I wouldn't enjoy it as much. But I think that length comes in just right for the amount of complexity and setup too. You literally pull out a deck of 12 cards and you shuffle them up and lay them on the table and you get going. Yeah, and, and I don't know about you, Peter, now that you've been playing it uh, with your group, but I know that every time I pull it out, I play two or three games in a row, uh, solo or with other people. So yeah, the short length definitely uh, lends itself to that. Absolutely. And it's one of those you can, even if you lose, you say, let's set it up and play again. If you win, you pull out a next scenario. You can play with the same characters very easily, or you can pull out you know new characters for everybody to try. And again, you're just pulling out a deck of 12 cards, shuffling them up, and you get going. So, Mike, what's your number three? My lowest pro is uh, the showdown at the end. I like the mechanic of having a kind of risk factor right at the end of a game where you set up things in the best way possible and you try to kind of mitigate the risk as much as possible, but then you still come down to some luck at the very end. I love uh, Galaxy Trucker where you build up your ship and then you're at the mercy of the cards. Uh, one of our own designs, uh, Salvation Road, uses this mechanic exactly in uh, its ending where you're trying to race to salvation and hoping you have the resources you need. So yeah, I like it here as well where you try to set up and you know if you're playing on normal and especially on hard mode, you're pretty much never going to win before you get to the showdown. So this is always going to be an important part. And it just adds a little bit of excitement. I like the fate dice, how they don't get too crazy with the swinginess of luck. You tend to be pretty close to the kind of the zero mark with their uh, their rolls. So yeah, I, I just like how the, uh, how the game ends. Yeah, I do like that. And the thing I like best about it is not just that stand-up dice moment at the end of the game, but the part I like even better is those decisions on the last couple turns. If that showdown phase wasn't there, you'd always want to spend all your fate every game. But this actually makes for a reason that you would actually gain a lot of fate toward the end of the game. Yeah, and to clarify what Peter's saying, each scenario has its own showdown card that shows how much fate you can spend to give yourself a chance to get more or less successes towards an enemy or an investigation at the end. So sometimes you don't want to use all your cards for their effects. You want to build up a big pool of fate points and then go crazy in the showdown at the end, which is kind of fun. All right. So my number two is simplicity. And what I mean by that is there are four different types of cards and they're all color coded. If you have a purple card, you know it takes an advantage. And if you look on the board, the advantages are purple as well. If you have an attack card, it's red. Same thing. The cards you're attacking on the board are red. So I like how the graphic design makes it very simple. Each card itself only has three statistics. It has a fate value, it has a range, and it has an amount of damage or clue tokens you're going to put on the board. So if you understand how an attack card works, it's going to work the exact same as an investigation card. Yeah, I agree. Simplicity was uh, one of my honorable mentions. I I think I I explained the game much less than I did at the beginning of the episode. Uh, I can explain the rules for this game in like a minute or two and get people playing. 
very casual players have had an easy time. So it's it's definitely an easy one to get to the table. Cool. So what's your next one? So my second one is actually the fate pool and the whole give and take of uh, adding fate points and taking away fate points as you play and discard cards. It reminds me a lot of uh, another co-op game I enjoy that my wife and I play a lot, Hanabi, which is a card game where you have these little tokens that let you give clues to each other. So every time you give a clue, you have to flip a token. And then when you discard a card, you get to add a token back. This is a very similar mechanic, except the discarding is more interesting, as we already said, because you have your talent uh, by your character to let you do something when you discard. But I really like that give and take in a cooperative game, especially. Playing solo, it's not as interesting, but cooperatively, it's kind of fun for me to be like, I'm not even sure what you're going to do on your turn, but I'm going to discard this card just to give you some more points so that you can do something really cool. I I like the cooperation that comes out of that, and I like just the give and take of the system in general. Absolutely. And that's actually my number one is the fate pool system. You know me, I like clever card play. I like multi-use cards. The cards don't even have different values on them. It's either it costs you four fate to play this card, or you gain four fate back if you turn it into gain fate. And the other thing I like about how they do it is that would normally be a dead action. But with this game, you actually gain a benefit from your talent. So you're actually getting to do something as well. So the choice is actually very interesting. And a lot of times, Even if it's a one fate card, you may discard it to get that talent special power just because that's more powerful than anything you can do with your cards at that particular moment. And I've seen this mechanic in other games where you're using cards to pay for other cards, but it's usually just discard three cards to get this power. This one, every card has its own value. The more powerful ones are going to give you greater benefit on the board, but they would also give you back more fate. So I I think it's a much tougher choice. Yeah, I mean, I think the way they handle fate points is is great. I really love the uh, mechanic there. But it didn't quite beat out my number one. And my number one is the low-luck puzzle nature of the game. So to be clear, except for that initial card draw and the initial laying out of bad cards you're trying to overcome, there's almost no luck in the game. Uh, sometimes you have to draw an extra card, but very rarely, pretty much never draw more cards in this game. You get your six or seven cards at the beginning, and that's it. You just have to deal with those. And uh, the fate dice, even though they're in the game, are used very sparingly except for in the showdown. Uh, A few cards in each player's deck might have a fate, but often it's not even a big deal. It might just make a power cost one more fate or one less fate. And I'm a big fan of solo games and solo puzzle games. An example of what I mean by puzzle is uh, Combat in Mage Knight, which I only play solo, is kind of a puzzle because you have all these cards and there's probably one ideal way to resolve them, but it's up to you to figure that out. Dresden Files has kind of the same sort of feel to it of there being some path to find to get through the game and have the best result, but you got to find it. And the cool thing here is that I've seen in very few other games is that it's a cooperative game with that element. So you're trying to work together to solve this puzzle. And if you knew all the cards in each other's hands perfectly, you could probably do it no problem. But because you're not allowed to share specifics of the cards and you're not even sure what somebody's going to play and how much fate they need, you know, I might use five fate and leave Peter without enough for what he was going to do that was going to save the day. You really get like a cool kind of puzzle feeling in a cooperative game, which I don't think I've seen very much uh, before. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because in the solo version of the game, you play basically just like you would play a three-player game, but you do get one less card per character because you do have that perfect information. So obviously the designers of the game think that that is a huge advantage as well. 
Yeah, and I, mean, I, I don't know if it's as big as uh, three fewer cards, but I agree with them. And uh, don't get me wrong, I love the game solo. I've probably played it 10 or 15 times solo, but I, I do think it's it's a better game cooperatively, which is not always the case uh, with co-op games. Sometimes I feel like they're pretty much the same solo or cooperative. All right, so let's get right into my cons. I'm not going to comment a lot on that because my number three con, a lot of times our number threes are nitpicks. So this is a nitpick. It was luck. Even though you say it's a low-luck game, and I agree it's a low-luck game, there are some games you can just get an initial card draw that aren't going to lead you anywhere during the game. If you need a lot of attack because there's five enemies and maybe there's only two cases to solve and you get all clue cards, you're not going to be able to beat that scenario. I don't care how skillful you are at manipulating the puzzle. Now, I do like that there is... Contrary to my own statements here, I do like how you can discard those cards you're not going to need for investigation to get fate back, but I still think you can get in situations that are very hard to beat. In some scenarios, while those fate dice don't make a big difference, there was one scenario where you needed to get five points of attack on an enemy. You're spending five fate to use it. You have five plus or minus whatever that fate die is, and you roll a negative, which is going to happen one third of the time. You've wasted five fate. You've put no damage on this enemy, and all you are is in a worse situation than you were before you began. So while I don't think luck is a huge negative for me, I do still notice that there are some times where I almost want to reset the game two turns in. It's only a 30-minute game, but it still is a factor for some people. I don't disagree with anything you said, but I will just uh, clarify one thing. Uh, Whenever you roll the fate die after playing a card, you get to choose the target of that card after you see the fate die result. So in Peter's example, if you had planned well and there were two enemies you could attack, even if you rolled the minus and couldn't kill the one enemy, you could still put that damage on another enemy so it wouldn't necessarily be wasted. That's actually very true, although a lot of those cards have range of only one. Sure, sure. And so, you know, you would have to literally have two things to attack at the one range to be able to use it. Definitely. My con, and again, I agree with Peter, this is a nitpick, is um, the art in the game. Now, it's it's not bad at all. It's a little repetitive. And this isn't a huge deal, because I, I know they're, they're not the biggest publishing house in the world, and this is a lot of art. Because for the book decks, which they've got, uh, I think four or five in the base game and then a bunch of expansions as well the book decks you've got more than four pieces of art because all the obstacle cards share the same art all the advantage cards share the same art all the investigations share the same art and then there's unique art for each enemy and then similarly for the character decks you've got uh, four pieces of art one for each type of card that's the same no matter what the card is so the art looks okay some of it is much better than others I can tell that the artist was probably rushing a little bit when the Kickstarter was made to try to, like, do this huge number of uh, illustrations. But also, even though there are so many illustrations, I still wish there were more. Um, it's kind of like the uh, the Marvel Legendary Syndrome, where, like, you see the same thing no matter what the character's doing, like one Spider-Man illustration. And I, I love these books so much, and I really haven't seen that much art except for fan art of the characters that I love actually doing stuff. So when I heard about the game, I was really excited to see a ton of art. But then, you know, I see Harry casting a fire spell, no matter whether the card actually says he's doing a fire spell or not. So, small thing, but I don't love the... The art itself is sometimes not great, and the variety is okay, but could be better. Yeah, and that didn't bother me as much, although I do see what you're saying. So, my next con is the theme. 
I do think when I tried to pull this game out with a couple groups and it's Dresden Files theme, I think it's going to be a pro for some people, but I do think it's going to be a turnoff for others. People who aren't in the series, people who don't know it, it could be a turnoff for people. I did notice it was harder for me to get to the table a couple of times because of the theme. I actually think there is two pros to go along with this too. So <laughs> my cons list is not very conny, but the number one is I think if you like the theme, you're going to like it in the game. I think they do some really cool nods to the theme in the specific story decks. And I do think the benefit, though, of the game being so simplistic is once you're into the game, the theme can fall away if you don't want to be in that world because all of the things are very similar. One attack card could be exactly the same as the next because they just have three stats to them. So because of that, I think the theme does drop away, but I did have some trouble getting people to the table based on the theme alone. Well, it's interesting you say that. I'm going to sort of be following up with uh, some of your cons, because my second was your third, which is the luck of the draw. So just to clarify, yes, my number one pro was the puzzle nature once all the cards were dealt, but I totally agree with Peter. He already said it very well, that when those cards are dealt, it can totally make or break the game. And to go even a little bit further, why it's my number two instead of my number three, the obstacle and advantage cards tend to be useful in very limited numbers. It can be terrible if you don't have at least a few of them. But once you have like maybe one or two per character, that's really all you need. And they also tend to have the lowest fate value, so discarding them doesn't usually get you very much. So I find, kind of like Peter said, that some games become way harder than they would be otherwise because, oh man, I got like five obstacle cards worth one fate each, and even discarding them isn't really getting me much. So I totally agree with Peter, and it bothered me a bit more that sometimes it feels like a game is already won or lost, like some games just aren't winnable, simply because I drew weaker cards or less useful cards based on the scenario. Yep. So going on to my number one con, and it's funny. When we came up with this concept for making this podcast, we were going to come at it from a designer perspective where we're going to have these great insights. But my number one con is this game to me just doesn't have that je ne sais quoi. I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it. It's like when you design a game and all the mechanics work properly, but it's not fun. I'm not saying that this game isn't fun. But it feels like there's something missing. I'll give two examples. I played with both my son and my wife. My son said, it's good for making the time pass quickly. And my- <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, that's a ringing endorsement there. This wastes my time. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, he, so he felt like the game played quickly and it, it, time doesn't pass quickly if you're not having at least some degree of fun. So obviously he was having some fun, but he wasn't dying to get it back to the table. And my wife felt the same way, you know, when she got into it. And I guess this goes back to theme a little bit. You know, I was like, well, after you played it, what did you think about the theme? And she goes, yeah, it didn't really bother me. This could have been a theme about anything. And because of that, while if you're a fan of the series, I think the theme on the cards is pretty cool to read and remind yourself, oh, yeah, this happened in this book. But it just didn't necessarily leave those lasting memories with me, even though I love playing it. And and you're right. When I got it to the table, I played it like five or six times in a row. But something just always felt missing just a little bit. Yeah, and I I don't disagree with you. It's definitely not one of my top co-ops of the last few years. If I didn't love the Dresden theme so much, I probably wouldn't play it as much as I do, and I might trade it away. But I I do have fun playing it quite a bit, but it doesn't come out very often. Like, I'll play it like four or five times in a row when I get it out, and then it'll sit on my shelf for like three or four months. So yeah, I, I agree with you that it's not blowing me away when I play it. It's fine, but not amazing. 
I feel about this game the way I feel about a game we were talking about earlier today, which is One Deck Dungeon. I feel like there's something there. I have interesting time playing the game. I love all the decisions I'm making, but it never just draws me back in and says, yes, this is the game I have to play tonight. I mean, both of those are kind of, especially when you're playing solo, are kind of optimization puzzles where there is a best solution in any given situation. Do you think that doesn't appeal to you that much, maybe? Because that doesn't bother me as much, but that's a lot of the solo games I play are like that. It may be, and it may be that I've played this game solo more than I've played it with other players. I've definitely gotten this game to the table a lot, because when I've got it there, I've been enjoying myself. I love the mechanics. It kept bringing me back, which is the weird part about why I'm saying they're just... It's almost like these new games that you play on your phone that you play for like an hour at a time, and they keep bringing you back for whatever reason but you kind of feel hollow at the end. Yeah, although, uh, are we holding it to too high a standard? Because this is not Arkham Horror LCG where you got to spend like $200. This is not Gloomhaven. This is a little like $20 to $30 card game that takes 30 minutes to play. Like maybe that's as much as you can expect from a game that small and quick, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. And you know, this is a filler length game. So maybe we should hold it to a different standard. So what is your number one con? Well, I, I will say, uh, I, I sort of followed you. So your third was luck, my second was luck, your second was theme, my first is theme. But I come at it from a slightly different uh, way than you. So the first thing that bothered me, and this is something I actually brought up because I was a Kickstarter backer, I really wished that they had put quotes from the book on each of the cards because the theme is a little bit light and isn't really like, like Peter was saying, I agree that this could kind of be a game about anything. Yes, there are nods to the books, as he said, like, especially in the scenarios, there'll be specific things that are very specific to that book. But at the same time, I still don't feel like, like, I, you know, I, I just play a purple card that does three damage. I don't necessarily look at what the card's title is and feel like I'm doing it. And I feel like something small, like the art that I mentioned earlier, or a quote from the novel that actually reminded me more directly about the novel would make it cooler for people who know the books and also maybe give a little bit more context for people who don't know the books if they want to have some idea of what's going on. So I feel like that was a little bit of a miss. But the main thing that bothers me in terms of the theme is that the actions are basically the same. So when you are fighting an enemy or when you are investigating a case, you're just putting tokens of the appropriate color on it until you meet its life and then it goes away. There's basically no fundamental difference between cases and enemies in any way. Now, obstacles and advantages, they do play a little bit differently, but the main stuff you're doing for most of the game are investigations and enemies because they take a while to deal with, and they're fundamentally identical, which is a little weird when you're talking about like trying to solve a mystery and fighting a vampire. Thematically, I don't feel like those should be the same. Now, I like the mechanics enough, and I like the puzzle enough, and I like the cooperation that it doesn't bother me. So much that I don't, you know, enjoy the game. But I do wish, like, it'd be really cool to get, like, an adventure game, you know, an Arkham Horror-style game or a Pathfinder-style game or a, a tabletop game in the Dresden universe at some point. I would love to play that and get a stronger theme going. Absolutely. And I do think we are putting this game to a higher standard because we do like the base material so much. I mean, part of the reason we're doing this podcast this week is I think this game isn't getting enough love. So just rolling that right into my final thoughts, I really like this game. I really think for a, it's a $40 investment. You know, if you get it on one of the online retailers, you can get it for 30 for the base box. You can get everything that goes with this game from the Evil Hat website for $70. And I don't think you should go in getting everything right off the bat. I think there's plenty of game 
in the base box for $40 or $30 if you buy it online. So I think it's a great value. The one thing that it also does that's very different is I feel like this is a filler cooperative game, and we don't have very many of those. You you mentioned Hanabi earlier, and I think that's a perfect comparison. I do think Dresden Files and Hanabi are probably the only filler co-op games that I can think of. So it's a great way to start your night or end your night. So I think it's perfect, especially at that price point, to get in just to have a co-op filler in your library, especially if you love the source material. I think you're going to love the game. Yeah, and then my final thoughts. I also really like the game. I wouldn't quite say love it, but it's it's staying in my collection, and I, I trade games pretty actively, so that's a that's pretty high praise. I agree with Peter that it's a really good cooperative filler on the ranks of Hanabi, or uh, the other one I've been playing a lot is Code Names or Code Names Pictures with the cooperative variant. But it's a lot of fun. If you love Dresden, there's no reason not to get this game if you enjoy games. Even if you don't, I think casual players can enjoy this too. It really does have a decent number of similarities to Hanabi, the more I think about it. But that's just a total bonus for me, because it's kind of like a step up from Hanabi. Better theme, more going on, takes a little bit longer to play, so if I'm not quite in the mood for something as short and light as Hanabi, Dresden is a great one to throw down. My wife enjoys playing it. Everyone else I've uh, played it with has enjoyed it. So, yeah, it's it's a fun experience. I definitely recommend it. Cool. Well, now we are going to get into our design debate this week. And this week we're going to talk about licensed properties and whether we think it's a good thing or a bad thing that board games are getting licenses. So, Mike, you're going to take on the role of cons this week. Did you want to start or you want me to start? I will start, man. Go for it. Okay, so let's get it right out of the bat. Creativity is dead. (laughs) sometimes uh you know movies tend to be remakes or sequels more than original properties we see that in lots of things and i don't want to see that in my board games you know yes i could do another board game set in lord of the rings but i would love to see a new unique fantasy world that does its own thing instead of seeing the exact same thing again There are so many cool sci-fi things to create. You can create all new characters with their own abilities instead of trying to slavishly, you know, recreate something from somebody's memory that's never going to be perfect anyway. Why don't you go and make something new? I see where you're coming from, but I think when a licensed game gets it right, it does bring you into that universe you love. Like we were talking about with Dresden Files cooperative card game. I don't think I would enjoy the game as much if it wasn't Dresden Files and I didn't have that attachment to it. Some of my favorite games of all time, War of the Ring or the new Star Wars Rebellion, they get you in that universe and make you feel like you're playing around in that universe. It doesn't have to be an exact recreation. I think Battlestar Galactica, another great example, they get you in the feel and the mood of that universe without making it just a recreation of something you've already seen before. But it does bring back a lot of those memories. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. When a cooperative game is done right with a license, um, or even not cooperative, I mean, you brought up Battlestar Galactica, and I think that's a great license game, at least the core box. But I think you tend to get into one of two camps. I think it's kind of impossible to satisfy fans of a source material, because either you focus on streamlined mechanics, and you lose the nuance, so people get upset that like their character isn't in the game, or isn't represented the way they want it, or just can't do the things that that character does, which leads to frustration. Or on the other hand, you try to model everything that's unique about the system, and you get so bogged down in exceptions and card text and stuff that the game becomes you know a bear and almost unplayable. 
so I think that it's kind of impossible to, to please fans of source material with a board game, just like it generally is with a video game. Those usually don't do very well either. So I think every once in a while you get a licensed game that hits that sweet spot where it kind of it, it satisfies both camps or just does one side or the other really well. But generally, I feel like most fans of source material are going to be kind of let down with the game over time. Well, and I mean, I'll talk about the both sides of the camp. I think we've seen that and we've talked about that today. Games like Firefly, games like Star Wars Rebellion, games like War of the Rings. Those are very deep, crunchy games that I don't think non-gamers would get into at all. I think they are going for a very specific market, a market that likes that IP and that likes crunchy games. Whereas Dresden Files was on the exact opposite side. They went for streamlined mechanics much more than they went for theme. And that's one of our complaints about the game is that every card did play very similarly. No, but but see, you're, you're proving my point here a little bit. Because Dresden Files, we would have loved a little bit more theme. It was too light on theme. Firefly is too much of a bear to play and takes too long, so I traded it away. And you didn't really like playing it that much either. So I think think it is like really, really, really tough and almost always fails to kind of get that middle ground where everyone can be happy and you really like the game. Right. But then we have games like War of the Ring and Star Wars Rebellion and Battlestar that do it right. So I yeah I, I think it can be done right. I don't think a license is automatically a death sentence or a death spiral for a game. I do think if the license is done well, it is a pro and makes people who like the source material like the game better. Well, let, let me bring up another uh, con, though, with this death spiral idea you just said. I think a major negative of licenses, and, you know, it's kind of the nature of the beast, is that the games tend to have a higher price point and often lesser components because the license becomes such a large portion of the money. You know, you see this all the time with like the the Firefly games or getting rights to the art and all this kind of stuff. Um, some games do okay, but a lot of times, like if you look at Fantasy Flight games that have licenses, like some of, a lot of the Star Wars games, if you compare it to a comparable Fantasy Flight game, that game is more expensive because of the license. And that's a little annoying when you could have had the exact same good game with the same mechanics with an original world and had to pay a lot less for it, which might have led to the game being more successful. But do you like Imperial Assault or Descent better? (laughs) Um, Imperial Assault. (laughs) Right. Because of that license, right? I don't even think you're paying more in that situation. But it has almost identical mechanics with a universe that has you more invested. And I think that's the benefit of a licensed property is you're already invested in the property when you come in. Now, if they do it wrong, don't get me wrong. It's going to make you twice as mad at that game. But if they get it right, and they do sometimes, and when they get it right, it is an experience you can't recreate with a non-licensed property. I will agree. Okay, I I, got to give you that. And actually, I guess Fantasy Flight wasn't the best example because you're actually getting more content with Imperial Assault since you get the entire skirmish mode on top of the campaign. But I will say, as much as I agree, that you get that kind of uh, blissful experience with a licensed game that is done well. How crushing is it when you're so excited for a game, it's a license you love, and then they totally screw the pooch? I mean, that's just, that's a terrible feeling. <laughs> it's like when a movie comes out, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of The Dark Tower. I think that's that's a series I love, and that movie looks like it's going to be trash. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that the the joy of the rare good license game balances out the crushing of hopes and dreams of all these bad license games and mediocre license games. 
Yeah, and when they put a license on something like Monopoly or Risk, when it's like Lord of the Rings Risk or Lord of the Rings Monopoly, I mean, come on. Yeah, there might be a couple rule changes, but that is literally just throwing a license on to get people to buy it. Now, those licensed games, I agree. And, and I do agree that you need the game to be good. I think that's the most important thing. I don't care if you got a license on it or not. The game itself has to be good. And so if you got a bad licensed game or a bad non-licensed game, I don't care. I just want you to put all your effort into the design. And then if there's a license on top of it that I love, that's going to make it even better for me. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense that licensed games might have a tough time being good. Because I imagine a lot of companies will secure the rights first and then design a game for that theme or that license. Because it's a pretty iffy thing to design a game fully when you're not even sure if you're going to get the license, if that license is integral to like the way the game plays. Yeah, that's true. So I I imagine that's why you get a lot of kind of turds in the mix. Because game companies are like, oh man, we got to get the Firefly license, we got to get the Firefly license. Okay, uh, let's make a crappy card game that's terrible. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point I never thought of before. These games might just not have enough time to get developed. I think Fantasy Flight does it right, and they have such hits in this market because they take two, three years to develop a license. They're not just getting a license today and slapping it on any game that they come up with tomorrow. They're really taking their time with it. So I think that's a great word of advice to designers out there. If you have a license, if you get a license, take your time and do it right, because it's going to be very divisive either way. People are either going to love your game or hate your game, and it's because they're so passionate about that license. So with that being said, thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-Opcast. Thanks for joining us on Co-Opcast. We'll be back in two weeks to discuss another great cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes and feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at MVPBoardGames at gmail.com. I feel like I've gotten slower in my old age. I feel that way too about you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's get it right out of the bat. So this is a game that plays in about 30 minutes, a cooperative game. It plays from one to five players. Of course it's a cooperative game, Peter. It was in the title. Yeah, I should have figured that out before uh, <laughs> before this point, huh? Well, I guess I should explain the fate pool. I'm not doing a great job here. <laughs> I think you're getting a little too detailed. So with that being said, I think we've actually surpassed the time it would have taken us to play Dresden Files, the cooperative card game. Oh, I've, I've been playing it this entire time, haven't you? Yeah, I'm on my third game now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Peter can play a five-minute Dresden Files solo game while podcasting. He's very talented.